0: Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you, and the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side
1: behind the scenes of sports, Hollywood, and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Hope everyone's having a good summer. We're almost at the end here, Paul. I know. Rano Sin sinti. So bad buddy, just to
0: jump right in. I was out of town most of the weekend. I got back late last night. I was spending some time with my folks and my brother and his family, but Bad Bunny absolutely took over New York City, and I really wanted to see him. I mean, tickets at a certain point got astronomically expensive, so Jess and I weren't able to go, but apparently it was like the performance of the year. Like, you know, he won his VMA for Artist of the Year, and then they did a live feed from him in Yankee Stadium, and he was just like rocking the house. I mean, I've been watching videos all morning about how big of a party it was, right? Like, people were just decked out. So celebrating the reggaeton, Latin American, Latin culture, and Latin music. And it wasn't just Yankee Stadium. It was like literally the entire Bronx was rocking. That's sick. Because he's just like so infectious. And I'm a big Bad Bunny fan. I mean, maybe more of a recent Bad Bunny fan, like the past two years. But Spanish was a language I learned growing up and in college, but I don't use it that much. So I only understand like 20, 30% of the lyrics. But even beyond that, it's just the music, the melody,
1: just the vibe of he's the biggest artist in the world right now. I mean, I feel like there's like Bad Bunny and there's a few others that have just become so massive and the audience sizes are so big. I was also not here in New York. I also got back at the end of the weekend on Sunday. But I think it's cool. I want to see the live stream from the VMAs. I didn't even realize the VMAs were happening this weekend. And then I saw on TikTok, it was all the... uh, Jack Harlow and Fergie collaboration on there. So I'm sure I'll end up watching the Bad Bunny uh, video at some point.
0: Yeah. And on a sad note, I wanted to remember Julian Robertson. For those in our audience that don't know, Julian Robertson was like one of the first hedge fund tycoons, kind of a pillar in the finance industry. And he started a scholarship, Duke and UNC, called the Robertson Scholarship, which I received. And that was an instrumental part in my going to Duke. And you know, he paid for my college, so... You know, forever in his debt. And he's a great guy. I used to interact with him sort of like once a year, he would throw a Christmas party in New York City. And while I was at school, he was there and I would talk to him and his wife. She passed away maybe like 12 years ago. Great people. He was self-made and they gave a lot to charity. They were very focused on sort of preventing the worst impacts of climate change and affordable housing in New York. But Towards the end of his life, the latter stages of his life, he did give back a lot to the community, and he inspired me, and I hope he leaves a lasting legacy with me and, you know, the other Robertson scholars.
1: That's pretty cool in terms of putting all that to scholarships. Yeah. Sorry to hear, Paul, but uh, glad that you did get that scholarship.
0: You know, time takes all
1: of us in the end, right? 90 years, though, it's a pretty... Yeah, that's legit. He had a hell of a run. Okay, so we also had House of Dragons premiere, which was last week, which draws nearly 10 million viewers. I think it's now up to 20 million. It's the second episode just aired. Largest audience for any new original series on HBO. The uh, reviews were pretty decent as well. I've been watching it. I'm intrigued. And, you know, I don't know. I think it's cool that at least they've, in the first two episodes, it's definitely intriguing. I think a lot of people are worried about the show, like, Are they going to get it right? Will they have enough of a budget to like get the dragons and and all the stuff they need on a visual level correct? I'm liking it so far, but we're only two episodes in.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to hold off and watch it at the end and binge it all at once. That's kind of how I watch Game of Thrones. And it's it's taking some willpower to not watch. (laughs) But it's funny because it's not really original. I mean, it is, but there's such a huge fan base built in. So it's not like an original show could really probably do these numbers but i'm glad that fans are liking it because there was so much uh there was so much division about you know how the the first the, run yeah, ended ended and there were a lot of disappointed fans i mean i think there were just the expectations were probably too high but you know here we are back
1: hotd well so so based on i think what the biggest issue would happen, and as most fans know, the end of Game of Thrones, the issue was the books weren't written. The show creators kind of took it on their own. And I think in this case here, this is 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones, and this is based on one of the books that George R. R. Martin uh, has written. So I wonder if they just have the right material now. The more source like. material. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But it's already been renewed for a second season. As we said, averaging 10 million viewers that episode, that's that's insane. And that doesn't include people that are going to watch it later. So I wonder how massive this could be for HBO.
0: You know, it's funny because we talked about a couple weeks ago, Dave Zaslov, the canned Batgirl after making it, they decided not to release it. And there's a long list of shows and movies that are being taken off the platform. And so we were like, you know, what's going on here, right? You take a hatchet to most of the... Slate, late, but now we're starting to see what their strategy is. Obviously, we knew Game of Thrones was going to be a big part of that. Euphoria, Succession. And then they just did a first look deal with Matt Reeves, who directed The Batman. I know you liked The Batman. I did. I thought it was decent. I thought it was a little bit dark, but I mean, that's kind of the whole thing with Batman. Yeah. But he signed a multi-year first look deal where he's going to basically be Warner Brothers film and TV kind of creative engine. And he was just at Netflix. So his first look deal at Netflix presumably is over because technically you can't really have two. Although I guess that's what creative lawyers do is they try to make carve outs and say, well, we can do one category of things or some stuff elsewhere and carve that out. But I think they're basically saying, hey, Matt Reeves, we're giving you the reins here for an interconnected universe of film and TV for HBO. And I assume he's gonna have resources to build out his team and to develop, obviously, the Penguin. I think there's a Batman series for HBO Max and film. So, you know, it's a really big step for them. I think they have a little bit of a fresh slate now, new leadership, new management, and we'll see. I mean, Matt Reeves is a really talented guy. Sort of grew up in the business, has been making movies since he was a teenager, a USC grad. So he's vetted. He's got his bona fides.
1: And we'll see how it goes. I know you were a big fan of the Batman. I was, I thought it was okay. I liked it. I think now I think about it, I enjoyed it. A little slow. I mean, obviously Christopher Nolan's, that was more fun. Like, I want a bit of fun. I want a bit of drama. I like the darkness. This was a little too dark, but I enjoyed the movie. I thought Paul Dano was good. He was great, yeah. And and honestly, Colin Farrell as the Penguin is pretty incredible. So it's interesting that they're going to spin that off as a a potential series. All right, well, let's take a break here and we'll get back. We're going to talk about Barcelona football clubs, financial woes. Paul, so recently one of the stories in sports is around Barcelona Football Club, obviously known as, I mean, one of the best football clubs in the world. Everyone from Messi to Ronaldinho, some amazing big, big players that have, you know, all played for Barcelona. One of the news stories right now is that they're having some financial issues in terms of the business being in a lot of debt, them spending a lot of money, them selling assets. Just to pay for some of the things that, you know, they're trying to revamp the team. They're trying to get a new stadium. But, you know, it seems to be an ongoing thing I'm hearing within like the world of soccer. These clubs that are getting bought or restructured financially. But in the last year, basically, they've had losses close to $500 million, debt of $1.3 billion. Like I said, selling club assets to raise money. Goldman Sachs just did a financing for 1.5 billion to update the new stadium and sign new players. I think this stuff's really interesting. Soccer in general is a little technical. There's a lot happening here, but I'm just curious to get your thoughts. Agreed on the recap. So I am
0: not the biggest soccer fan, although I do acknowledge that like, you know, I watch the World Cup and a lot of my friends are big UEFA fans and Champions League and La Liga. And so it is the world's most popular sport. Barcelona, Barca, has probably one of the elite franchises in all of sports. I think they have 400 million fans or so reportedly worldwide. They could, in any given year, be championship contenders. Typically, they had Messi, as you said. Messi was on a, he was making 132 million euros a year at the end, right? And so crazy. it was a very public thing when they couldn't afford to keep him and he had to leave even though they had closed the deal. They just didn't have enough revenue to register him. And I guess part of that is because La Liga, the Spanish league that they are in, they have financial fair play requirements, right? And so what that means is at the start of every season, you have to submit your financials to the league and say what your projected revenue is, what your expenses are and what your debt is. And based on that, they allow you to spend a certain amount on players. And so Barcelona was only allowed because of the significant amount of debt and the amount of money that they've lost last year. They were only allowed to spend 98 million euro on players, and they didn't view that as something that could field a competitive team. So their president, Laporta, basically, he's going the other way, right? So <laughs> normally, when you have a team yeah. that had years of bad contracts and lost revenue— what they do is they cut payroll. Right. They slim down their budget and they just try to sort of like win with young, unproven, inexpensive talent and take some shots and rebuild. That's typically what happens in sports. You try to rebuild. Sometimes you hit, you miss. Sometimes it takes a long time and it could take a decade. But Laporta is not doing that. They were the biggest spenders in the off season. They signed Kunde, yep. Rafinha, And Lewandowski spent 150 million euro signing players, and they weren't able to register those players until they raised money. So what they had to do was they sold 25% of their television rights for the next 25 years. They sold 25% of their production company, and they did a four-year stadium and jersey sponsorship deal with Spotify Spotify. to raise about a billion dollars. (laughs) So... Basically, some are saying, well, they're mortgaging their future rather than do the rational thing, which would be to spend less and try to make more than you spend by cutting costs. They're, in fact, spending a lot and leveraging their future assets, taking on debt, selling sponsorships, and other things. Because Laporta's strategy is hey, if we're at the top of the heap, if we're winning, if we're a championship level contender now that our revenue is going to be so much bigger that we'll be able to sort of like get through this rough patch. He's projecting that with a new stadium and a very competitive sort of like top of the league, Champions League qualifying right. team, they can make a billion or more in revenue a year. And if they do that for a couple of years, then everything's good again. The thing is, if they don't do that, right? they don't perform, then they've completely leveraged their future because they've taken on so much more debt. And then they don't even have of their broadcast rights. They've sold 25% of their production company. So, I mean, it's an interesting strategy to sort of spend your way out of a problem like this. (laughs) I think most teams would not do it, but this is not most teams. The ironic thing is it's sort of like the Green Bay Packers. They're owned by 150,000 members, right? Right. Kind of the town, the supporters of Barcelona kind of own the team. And it's not like one or two billionaires own the team. It's more democratic than that. And so they elected Laporta as president recently to bring them out of this crisis. And I mean, we'll see. They're also, ironically, in addition to being the biggest spenders for new players and transfer fees, they're also trying to get their current players to take salary cuts. And they're right. trying to get De Jong to leave, who's uh, you know signed to a hundred million dollar deal. And they're like, hey, just Please go somewhere else. But he's on he's under contract, so they can't necessarily just cut him. It's not like the NFL.
1: It is really interesting. Like one would think clean everything up and then go and like revamp. But then also you have like you know, one of the most famous teams in the world. What if they don't make it through this? And then you can't actually afford to keep some of the best players on. What happens to you as a team? Well, that already happened when they lost the best player in the world, right? Right. right. Messy. And like now can you, you know, for the numbers that you put there, I think it, it ends up being like a little over 100 million getting these new players on. This is the type of stuff that's really interesting because we saw this with the Arsenal documentary that I had mentioned before on Amazon Prime, All or Nothing, where you basically followed a team for a season, but you saw that the owner and the manager, what they have to figure out financing-wise to sign certain players to get back into the standings and the amount of money they're losing. Like Arsenal specifically didn't qualify for the Champions League, so they're losing a ton of revenue now because they're not in the Champions League, which essentially you're playing two seasons at the same time you know, you're losing revenue there that you could put towards new players, et cetera. I do think it's interesting. Now we're seeing Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund came in. They're putting 300 million pounds into taking over Newcastle United. Again, bringing that premiership level. uh, Newcastle's dropped over the years, but at one point back in the mid-90s we're like the Alan Shearer and Newcastle were like a legit team. Can you buy your way to success? Absolutely. We saw that with Chelsea, and Ibrahimovic, when he came in, poured a bunch of money into Chelsea. I think we saw that with Man City, where a bunch of money was poured into Man City. We'll see that now with Newcastle, with the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. I think the difference is with Barcelona is that they had to do some interesting financing where instead of like having someone come in and be like, here's a billion dollars pounds or a billion dollars, spend it on whatever you want. They're taking existing assets, selling them off, doing all sorts of financing deals. If someone's going to give them a billion they're not going to do it for charity, right? Like they're no. going to expect ownership or something. Yeah, I think so. But I think it's like, yes. But in this case, you're like, you're still in debt. And God knows for a lot of reasons, like a lot of these people, you're either a super wealthy Multi-billionaire, you're coming in, you're still running it as a business, but I think you're dealing with less stuff if you're just like one single source of capital versus now you're like selling the rights to all these different things and potentially putting yourself in a bad place.
0: Potentially. Here's where I, Laporte's strategy kind of makes sense to me. I think it's like winner go home. He's a gambler. He's taking calculated risks. You know, we live in New York, right? So the Yankees, although they haven't won a title since 2009, they're among the biggest spenders in the sport and they have the most among the most revenue. Same with the Dodgers in L.A., right? So like drawing an analogy to baseball, you have to spend to stay relevant. If you have the revenue, if you have the resources like the TV deals and the market, if you're making more money than the sort of like smaller revenue teams, might as well spend it, and make the best product, right? Even if you're not necessarily going to win titles because the worst thing you can do is sort of become irrelevant. And then how do you get out of that? I mean, if they get relegated, if they weren't in the Champions League, if that happened for three or four or five years, I don't know, maybe they couldn't get back to their standing as an
1: elite team. So maybe this was the only choice they felt they had. I like the like swing for the fences type of thing. So I'm excited to see whether it pans out for him or not. There's a have and have nots for in soccer. It's like Real Madrid's salary
0: where we said the maximum that... Barcelona was allowed to spend, was like 98 million euros. Real Madrid was allowed to spend like 740 million because they're much more profitable. They didn't have the debt. They didn't lose money last year. How do you feel to a competitive team when someone can spend seven
1: times what you can spend? It'll be interesting to watch this season and to see how everything pans out. Yeah,
0: and just like comparatively. So they signed a lot of bad contracts. COVID obviously impacted them. They spent 70% of their revenue on players in the past. And just for other sports, I know you talk about UFC, UFC, the fighters get about 20% of the revenue in the NBA and NFL. It's just around 50%, maybe a little bit less than 50%. So 70% is high. But can you imagine $132 million a year to Messi?
1: I mean, I guess if you're that good, I mean, I think that's what I kind of like about soccer is that if you're really good, you're going to get paid really, really well. There's no doubt about it. These guys are just crushing it. I mean, it's such a massive sport, though. I mean, if you, again, if you just watch these docs on there, like the fan base, the, culture around it. Like, it's really amazing to see. And then you get to see all these people compete in these like World Cup and Euro Cup. I mean, they're just they're everywhere around the world constantly. It is pretty amazing to watch. And I'm glad they get paid well for it. I mean, it's not like they're knocking on doors, raising money. I mean,
0: Goldman Sachs is raising their financing and yeah, like that's yeah. an elite financial yeah. institution. So clearly sports is huge business. If they can make a billion in revenue or more than that a year for a couple of years, they're out of this mess and they're back to the top of
1: the standings. And so it'll be interesting to see it play out. If you're a Goldman Sachs, I'm assuming that you're doing a financing on this based on one of the most recognized football brands in the entire world.
0: Yeah, and their broadcast rights,
1: right? Like that's the collateral.
0: You're betting that however many people, 400 million fans, however many you know, domestically and internationally are going to keep watching and what those rights fees are.
1: And even if the team, let's say, doesn't do well because they can't afford certain players, that's not going to drop off over like a year or two. I wonder how long the financing goes for. but like the loyalty in these sports are, are pretty high.
0: You're the Arsenal fan, right? So can't you, with a handful of stars, build out a roster with like young talent and stay competitive? Isn't that possible?
1: I think it's definitely possible. And and like the Arsenal documentary was really interesting because like a lot of these players were in the Arsenal training program. Like they found these guys when they're kids, they train them, they lend them out so that they get experience and they essentially like court them and then they build this talent themselves, but then they still need like a big player. So like they're now putting money aside, cleaning up the balance sheet, putting money aside to sign like a really, really big player. And I think with Arsenal, they did do that with Jesus. um, They signed this uh, Brazilian player um, and a a few other players. But like they need, they still need that. Like, who is the person who's going to make these goals for us? That's going to compete at a really high level. I was with my family this weekend and my nephew,
0: I have two nephews um, and they both play soccer like all the time and they're like very competitive on travel teams and i watched them play this weekend and there was one kid on my older nephew's team was a ringer like he, he scored this amazing goal and i was like is this guy from here and they're like oh no he's actually from dubai and i was like what you guys you guys are like 10 years old signing
1: players from uh over bringing in ringers like it's just it's crazy how the soccer game works man anything to get an edge they find them super young and they invest all these the time into them it is quite fascinating it's kind of mind-blowing like you find kids when they're like 12 11 12 and you like train them and then when they're 17 imagine being 17 18 years old and you're like one of the most sought-after players and then you're going to train for the next few years and it is cool to watch, I don't know. The documentary helped me get really back into this. So all this stuff is quite fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, well, it's the biggest sport in the world, one of the
1: biggest businesses. So it'll be good to watch. We'll continue um, monitoring it. All right, well, that's our show for this week, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, everyone. Make sure you are subscribed to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow us on Instagram, Better Call Paul, the podcast. And I'm on Twitter, at Mesh This episode is edited and produced by Valentino Rivera, and Marco Siler gonzalez thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Take care, everyone.